Welcome to the Ellie Holbrook podcast. Today on the show, we have Brie Gronley, licensed graduate social worker. Brie is joining us from my very own Sojourn Counseling Group, and she has been with us for, is it two years now that you started? All of yeah, including the internship. So she started her internship with Sojourn at our Wilmer location um, and has extended her career to join us, which we've just been delighted to have. Um, and one of the things that we're excited to talk to Brie about today is her work as a trauma specialist and in particular working with kids. Um, Brie, share us with us a little bit more about your background, like professionally and you know where, where, where it's taking you, where you're going. Absolutely. Yeah. First of all, thank you for having me on. I'm very excited to share the wealth and knowledge. The more people that can learn and and start using these tools earlier, the better. Um, So I have a bachelor's degree in in social work and I worked for about seven years in the social work field um, at county level. And then I went on to get my master's because I just saw a lot of need. A lot of areas were being missed when I was doing the county work. Um, They provide trauma training, but not the in-depth training. And so, and we live in a rural community. So there's just nobody in this area that really specialized in trauma specifically for children between the ages of zero to five. And so this was a huge passion of mine and I wanted to pursue it. So that led me to getting my master's. Mm-hmm. Um, and while obtaining my master's, then I also pursued a certification in trauma. And so for two years, I delved really deep into trauma, how it affects our body, how it affects our growth, how it affects our mind, it, um, how it changes the way we view things. And so it just, it really began that deep delve into the, something that I was passionate about and want to bring back to others. Mm, Yeah. Thank you. I know even as, um, on our staff, it's been such a gift having that experience and expertise that you have, especially with zero to five, it's such an underserved population and yet such an important age for intervention. Cause like you just Mm -hmm. said, the earlier, the better. And I think there's such a misconception still that people have that if a child doesn't have conscious memory of it, it doesn't affect them. And that's just such an outdated way of thinking. Um, I see why we think that, you know, because of like the way our cognition works. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's such an important age range to, of course, you know, be proactive and prevent as much as possible, but to to intervene as quickly as we can and surround kids and families with support to hopefully ensure that there isn't that then layering. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think too, um, people classify trauma as like, it always has to be these big, bad things, you know, like uh, sexual violence or severe physical abuse, broken bones. But what's funny with trauma is, you know, I like to say it's a fingerprint to all my clients. We, everybody's trauma is different for them because of our makeups, our life experiences, how we, when you experience the trauma, how then we interpret that trauma and how we react to that trauma, it's different across the board. Um, I like to give the example that I've learned from another clinician. Uh, You can both experience a car wreck and I might experience that, you know, my reaction to that might be very different than what my passenger's reaction was. Mm -hmm. And so it is like a fingerprint. It's very, very different from person to person. And when you have it happening pre-verbal stages, it's very hard for people to see that because it's inside, right? And when we, when we can't see the struggle that people are having outside, then that leads us to believe that they're faking it or that it's not happening or um, that it's not like a big deal. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, um, 
going back to what you had said about, you know, about trauma being the fingerprint and that it's a very personalized experience, you know, depending on so many different factors and variables, depending on, you know, resiliency, you know, previous experience, support system, Mm -hmm. things like that. Um, And even so, you know, I think it can be validating to hear that, you know, what might be traumatic for you is perhaps not traumatic for me, vice versa. Um, How in your work, how do you define trauma and help clients understand what trauma is? Because I think a lot of times with that misunderstanding, um, clients might not understand, you know, know that like what they've experienced is traumatic or has been traumatizing or what we would consider a trauma, you know, when we fill out like intake forms, any trauma? No. And then later they find out like, what, you know, why didn't, why did they say that? But it's, it's language, you know, and, and how we understand. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I consider trauma to be anything that's outside the normal human experience. So it can range from a house fire all the way up to sexual violence. It can be um, a major car accident that has greatly impacted your life and now you're disabled from it or you know you have these lasting effects from it and or it can be um your parents divorced you know trauma is it can be they call big t or little t traumas right and the big t trauma are those big things that usually ptsd is classified then with and then little t is these these little experiences that happen from time they're non-life-threatening um but what people get confused about is the big T traumas they can see, they can see the impact, they can see the PTSD effects, but these little T traumas, research has shown when you have multiple little T traumas, like one after another and repeated and repeated over and over and over again, then that's just as traumatizing for an individual as a big T trauma. Yep. And so, yeah, it's, um, it just, it really varies from person to person. And again, our life experiences and how we were raised and how, what we were taught really helps us you know, to develop the resiliency that we might have with it or the resiliency that we, we don't have with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, thanks for, you know, distinguishing those, you know, the big T trauma, like the really obvious overt kind of undeniable traumas and then the small T or little T. And I think those are the ones that are really important to shine light on as well, because they are the ones that can slip through the cracks or be missed again. And especially because those might be the ones that may or may not you know, be as traumatizing to one as they would be to others. And those are typically the things that if they're repetitive in, let's say, a family pattern or a way of relating to the world, mm-hmm. that um, we become so familiar with them and we become desensitized to it mm-hmm. and we learn how to endure, cope, survive. Um, and so we don't necessarily see it as the problem that it once was. You know, it's like the frog in boiling water, kind of, you know, just mm-hmm. right. And that's the stuff that can be really confusing because we feel like, well, I'm fine, but this, and it's endemic, yeah. you know, it's, it's ongoing. So like, for example, when we're doing EMDR work and the small T's come up and we say, what's your earliest memory of that? And they're like, I don't know. Like, you know, it can even be hard to like select a memory because it's just like, there's just so many, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with that too, I mean, there's a meme that goes around on Instagram that I always giggle at. It talks about you're at a dinner table and you're making a joke about this traumatic experience, but nobody else is laughing at it, but you're the only one laughing. You're like, oh wait, that was traumatic. Yeah. <laughs> and so right. like, 
you know, people use humor to kind of laugh that stuff off and to work through it. And so sometimes even we don't realize because we've been so exposed to it or we've been working out that we forget how traumatic that really is. And like, oh, it's actually not normal. It's not as normal, you know, like it's not, it's not funny for me, you know, but yeah, I still find it funny. And so, yeah, I think that, again, that speaks to what you were just saying. And to... I wanted to go back to kids. You were saying, you know, a lot of people struggle with the zero to five. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because I hear all the time when working with these young children, um, I heard it just today, like, oh, you know, this child's only two. There's no way this will impact their life. And I heard this from another professional and I just about fell out of my chair because I'm like, oh goodness, no, like I want to, I want to help you understand. And so then, you know, I get on my soapbox and I'm like, actually, What people don't understand is when you have trauma, it changes your neural pathways. And the most critical time for development is in utero. And there there's research that shows when in utero and we have, you know, the mother's experienced trauma, or if this is a traumatic birth, like, um, sorry, traumatic pregnancy, I should say, like this is a pregnancy that has occurred through rape or there's extreme domestic violence and the outside, the mother's cortisone levels go up. And so then that goes into the genetic making, you know? And so there's, there's a lot of research that shows that that is the largest period of growth development for the the developing brain and then the child is born and then they're still being exposed to this stuff even though this happened pre-verbal they will still be affected as they get older and so every time I always make sure to tell parents like it might seem like it's getting better because it is in a sense we've been able to label the triggers we've been able to track the pattern of behaviors and what they're connected to we've been able to provide you insight and ways to combat those and to connect with your child versus correct them and to let them know that you guys are a team it's not just them and that they can trust you and they feel safe with you but when they hit those major developmental periods it's going to come up again because your brain is your brain is changing your brain is growing so it's going to shift again mm-hmm. you might discover a new trigger i mean I'm 32 years old and I still discover triggers from my past. I I have a trauma history. And actually at the start of COVID, I had no idea that a mask covering my mouth Mm -hmm. and my nose would trigger me into a panic attack. And I had a full-blown panic attack in a courtroom. And so this is stuff that's stemming from my childhood still. Yes, you may have worked on it. Yes, but this is still stuff that comes up. Mm -hmm. And so... When I work with parents, I, I use a lot of care and purpose, um, trust-based relational interventions because there's it's an evidence-based modality that really teaches and fosters the parents to understand that you cannot parent a, a child who comes from a hard place the same as a biological child who's been raised in a safe, loving, nurturing environment. You just can't. There, there is two different worlds and it's two different types of parenting. And, you know, even when you have two biological children raised in a safe, loving, nurturing home, you have, there's still two different people. You still have to parent different, but same goes with a, a child from a hard place. They still need to be parented different. And so we have to work on the connecting. A child is never going to be able to correct if they cannot trust you, if they, if they if they don't inherently feel like I am safe. And often, you know, these children that come from hard places, they have learned, they have been taught from their attachment cycle that the world is unsafe. I always talk with parents about uh, the hand model is my favorite thing. I'll make sure to talk about that, but also the attachment cycle, you know, we're, we're crying and our uh, diaper needs to be changed. Normally, we parents change it. Our need is met. We're safe. Crying, we're hungry, we get fed, 
the world is safe. Crying, I want to be cuddled. I just didn't want to be alone. We're cuddled, we're kept safe. What happens with these, with children when they're younger, often with these parents, like you said earlier, generational trauma, it's a learned thing and, you know, their needs go unmet. So then their attachment cycle, you cry, nothing happens. You cry, your need goes unmet. You cry, nobody's coming to help me. You cry, eventually stop crying because you've learned that nobody's going to come. And what you also learn from that is that the world is not safe. So I'm not going to trust this strain. You know, I'm, I'm talking specifically with like foster care and adoption. Um, and even children who are in severely neglected homes, you know, when they go to school, people often were, well, why didn't they tell me? Because they didn't feel that you were safe to talk to. They assume that all adults are the same. Mm-hmm. I didn't share my own trauma until a year after I was adopted. And my trauma occurred from the ages of probably about three-ish until 10. And so like, that's a long period. Like I, you know, you just, when you learn that the world is unsafe, you learn then that you have to protect yourself and you are the only one that can keep yourself safe. And so that's often what these parents are battling. Mm -hmm. They're trying to recreate that attachment cycle. They're trying to reteach these children that the world can be safe. I am safe. I want to show you but you have to connect with them first. You have to find that connection piece with them before you can empower and before you can correct. If you correct before you connect, you're going to always, you're always going to be butting heads. You're always going to be struggling. You know, I think of one time, uh, I, uh, severe sexual abuse as a child. Um, and my mom, my birth mom would always put me in dresses and make me look really pretty and like parade me around. And, uh, my adoptive parents wanted to be kind and and share things and they would uh, get me dresses. Absolutely not. I refused to wear it. I didn't want to look at it. I refused to put it on. They had no idea because they weren't, they didn't connect with me at that point in order for me to feel trust to tell them like this dress is a trigger for me. Mm -hmm. Now that I've worked through it, I love getting dolled up and I love wearing dresses. And so like that also shows that there is hope. You know, these children aren't lost. That is another thing that people often say, like, oh, this children, this child is lost. They're going to be in the system forever. But that's not true. If we can get just one caring adult to create this huge ripple effect in these children's lives, that is gold right there. I, I always use ripple effect as a metaphor in my office as well. And I talk, even if the child is not going to be with you forever, you are creating this ripple effect to prove to them that the world is safe, that there are safe adults, that they can be trusted and that there is hope outside of what they have experienced. Um, and I have a sign to it, you know, it says uh, difficult roads often lead to beautiful, beautiful destinations. And a lot of times people, um, they struggle. They, they want us, people who experience trauma, they, they don't want to go through that ick. They don't want to go through the mud, but I get asked, will I ever be okay again? You know, and the answer is yes. But the key is doing the work and putting in the effort as you get older and beginning to make those connections. And yeah, you can get better, but we also have to do the work to do it. And so the sooner that you can aid these children, then the sooner the better. Then they get these tools at a young age to learn how to, you know, even their emotions are different than somebody who is from a safe, loving, nurturing environment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the example that I love the most because it happens quite often is um, a child in school is, you know, there's all this stuff going on in school. It's loud, it's chaotic. So a lot of times trauma kids have um, sensory 
struggles. And so they're already on edge because of that. And their brain is already popped. And so they're already having to talk and like sort through all the noise. Like, am I safe? What's going on? Um, And it might be reminiscent of a chaotic home life or what's happened in the past. And so a child then bumps into this child that's already sensory overloaded. What does the child do? Turns around and bops the kid. Because what happened is their their top popped, you know, the, the hand model that I want to make sure I, I talk with you about you, their top popped. And in that minute, they had to, am I safe? What's going on? Somebody just bumped into me. It's really loud. I'm sensory overloaded. But what happens is a teacher usually, we don't hit, get to the back of the line. Mm-hmm. So now, again, nobody understands the trauma. This child probably had an issue and then they felt they had to protect themselves. And now they're punished for doing something that's kept them safe their whole entire life. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's so important too, to just understand from a young age, how trauma does affect every behavior that a child does. Yeah. And a lot of times parents struggle with that because they feel like they're giving in. But with the behavior too, you know, so I'm holding up my hand is uh, imagine, so make a fist and your, your thumb is tucked into your underneath your fingers and you wrap them around. So I like to use this as like my brain model. Um, for parents to help them understand. So this is your, your brain, your functioning. It's your, your brain, your um, prefrontal, your temporal. Um, this is your reasoning brain. You can think clearly. You can make a sound decision. You're not impulsive. Your brain is fully working together. You have your hippocampus and your amygdala tucked underneath. That's what this thumb is that represents. And then your brainstem. When it's folded over and your fingers are covering your thumb, your parasympathetic system can work. It can keep you calm. This is how you, you go about the world. When a, a kid from a hard place has trauma and has experienced big T and little t trauma, their brain often pops. And what happens when your brain pops is you're no longer able to reason. And your amygdala, this is like your lizard brain, it kicks in and your fight, flight, or freeze response kicks in. And that is what you have utilized to keep yourself safe for this however many years. And so often in, in session, if I see a kid pop, I'll go pop and I, I hold up my brain so that they can start to connect the dot like, oh, I'm triggered and something happened. And then we can start to teach them too, because it's, it's important for them to understand too when they're being triggered. So they know what they need to do to calm themselves back down. And when your trauma brain is, is in control, your parasympathetic system goes out the window. It cannot calm you down. You're, you're too, you're too popped. And so when this happens, that's when you see a lot of the behaviors. That's when you hear the, you're not my mom. That's when you hear the, I hate yous, you know, nobody loves me. And so that's what a lot of parents struggle with. Right. I love that model of, you know, the brain popping and even like teaching kids um, and parents and support systems and our listeners, (laughs) like this is knowledge Mm -hmm. that we all need to know and understand and have that like that brain popped, you know, means we're activated and potentially dysregulated and to help them not only connect those dots, but in such a way that is compassionate and, and, you know, giving them grace that this is a, this is a survival mechanism that Mm -hmm. helped them at some point. Right. And so it's adaptive. And that, of course, as we know, what's adaptive can become maladaptive, but it helps them understand that they're not 
bad. They're not naughty because I think sometimes kids that do have more um, occurrences of trauma, like you said, the example of the kid, you know, that, that pushes one of their peers, then they get a consequence and they're maybe labeled as a bad kid because they act out. And then we're focusing on these behaviors. And then there's the self-esteem issues of like, I'm a bad kid. And we, and they don't understand why, you know, that tip of the iceberg is there and why mm-hmm. they behave the way that they do and they haven't been given other tools. And so, you know, then they feel like low self-esteem and all that kind of stuff that can then, you know, keep that cycle perpetuated. And when children mm-hmm. can understand their own inner workings and especially their support system that can help them, you know, connect dots or, you know, give grace, be compassionate, because that's going to de-escalate someone a heck of a lot faster than a consequence ever has. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And too, you know, oftentimes when parents aren't aware of the trauma that has occurred or aren't thinking about like, okay, you know, my child has experienced some form of trauma, I need to like be cognizant of that. And I need to, that's, that's honestly at the forefront of, it should be at the forefront of every parent's mind who, who is raising a child with trauma because simple things like screaming at target about not getting a cup. I just had a parent and she had indicated I could share this. She, um, she came into session and she's like, Oh, we were just screaming at target because we didn't have a cup. We couldn't get the cup. And I, I explained to them like the behaviors, you were not listening. You're not going to get the cup because you're not listening mm-hmm. now with a safe, nurturing, caring environment. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But what just happened and mom was just like, what did I do wrong? I'm like, well, you didn't do anything wrong in the sense that you thought you're teaching them that we don't get our way when we misbehave. Here's what the child was thinking about. This child then all of a sudden did like a, a head turn and withdrew in herself and became very shameful because in the past, their birth mother would always use materialistic items to show their love. So in that instant, this child immediately thought, I am not loved. Yeah. I'm not loved because I didn't get the cup. Yeah. The child is not hearing that my behaviors were bad. The child is hearing I am not loved. Right. And all of a sudden it was like a light bulb went off in this mother's head. And she was just like, oh my gosh. And that is the beauty though, of being able to walk the path with somebody to help teach you and to guide you. This is a hard path. And I commend foster and adoptive parents and those who are raising um, kids from hard places as their own because it is a tough journey. And even though I've been in the system and and I have my own trauma, I know for a fact I could could never do that. And so I, I love being able to give the tools to people to aid with that. And that's the key too, because the other thing to keep in mind is you yourself can also take on the secondary trauma. You can take on that um, and start to experience those symptoms as if they're your own too, because that is, it's very heavy. And, you know, just being able to find a good support network is extremely important and resources to help guide you. Right. And I, and I love that, like, even that example kind of provides how when we're working with kids with trauma or adults, you know, with, with the trauma that mm-hmm. has continued to be readdressed, we really need to think differently. And we kind of have to go into, um, 
you know, not only a deeper understanding of human nature, but more of like, I mean, even when I'm working like with equine therapy, we would talk about like the prey drive and the predator drive, you know, the prey drive mm-hmm. is really when they're in like the animal, the horse is in its like survival brain and then it acts erratically. And like we as humans have kind of that same activation. And so like the little one at target, you know, even going a step further upstream was probably that child knew they were acting out. They were starting to get like maybe um, corrected or redirected and then needed some reassurance. Do you love me? Oh, I'll ask for the cop. Now I'm not getting the cop. They don't love me. And so when we can understand like those inner workings, we can see how our children are trying to communicate with us. And as adults, Mm -hmm. we do it too. You know, we act out in certain ways or we have very unconscious, subconscious motivations to our behavior that even we don't understand. And so when we can like take this lens and explore, we can see like, oh, that's what's going on here, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And I do think it's important. And I am always baffled by how many parents that I explain this to, they're like, I have never heard this before. So, um, you know, there's a situation where this child is um, older, but when, but they act younger. And so I get the question all the time. Why, why is my child acting like a four-year-old? They, they know better at this point. What is going through their heads? I'm like, because when a child has trauma as extensive as some of these children have had, their chronological age might be 10, it might be eight, it might be 13, but their developmental age is cut in half. And so now they might be 10, but they're actually five. You are parenting a five-year-old, but on the outside, you're parenting a 10-year-old, mm-hmm. but on the inside, you're parenting a five-year-old or you're parenting a four-year-old if they're eight, you know? And so, and then that's like, now think about how a four-year-old acts. Think about how a five-year-old acts. And then the parents always like, Oh my gosh, that explains so much. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's not, I know, I can't believe how, how much that's not taught, you know, but like, there's a lot of research behind that, how developmentally and emotionally kids who come from higher places are, you know, delayed because they, they don't have this, the same um, chances and in, in supporting nature to help foster their minds and help them to grow and to be where they're at. So that's also, I think, important too. And then what happens too is children will enter into foster care and then become in a safe environment and then they will catch up. They'll also be where they're supposed to be, but then they will slope back down. Mm-hmm. And then parents again are like, I don't understand. We caught them up and now all of a sudden they're back here. And I'm like, well, they caught up because that's where they should be. But however, what you are forgetting is again, they are not technically there. So yes, they have the ability to get there, but they can't maintain that. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we have to work on, but they're going to slide back. And so I always like to caution and and give a heads up with parents too. just be like, be on the lookout for this and just be aware and be supportive. And just instead of shaming, just again, connect with them. Yep. Yeah. And, and I, thanks for saying that instead of shaming or scolding or, you know, like, yes, as an adult, it's frustrating, but we put so much pressure on kids to, so much. you know, get it all together and grow and, you know, be, be many adults and understand what we mean. And, you know, and it's, it's an interesting phenomena how as adults, we can forget to like drop into like the child's brain and especially Mm -hmm. if there's trauma, you know, the trauma child's brain and think from that perspective, not like expecting the child to be able to adopt the perspective of an adult. Cause that's like, it's impossible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you're talking about that, I don't know if you've ever seen the image 
Um, it's two wire adult figures and they're, they're sitting back to back and it's a wire so you can see through it, but they're both pouting. Like they're both looking away from each other. Their backs are touching and they're pouting. But inside the wire is two little kids trying to connect. Yeah. And, you know, as you were talking about that, it just makes me think like, you know, these children who are being society says you need to act this way and this is how you behave in public and you know better. Sure. So think of them as like that wire statue. And then inside they're like, they're just down and they're crying for the help and the attention that they need. And oftentimes parents get frustrated because they don't want to be embarrassed or they don't want to be mom shamed or they don't want to be the town's gossip, you know, especially in a rural community. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, you'll never guess. I saw Becky at the grocery store and her child was out of control. You know, you just don't want to be the town's gossip. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes then we lose our regulation. And then when we can't regulate ourselves, these kids that come from trauma cannot regulate either. And so I tell parents, I'm like, sit on the ground with them. Just Mm -hmm. sit there with them. Just let them cry and just let them know that they are not alone. And, you know, that's another thing we talk about timeouts. I tell my parents, stop doing timeouts. That is doing more harm than good. Think about it. When we are sad and, and we are hurt, what do we crave? We might crave some alone time, but we crave connection. Mm -hmm. So when you send a hurting child who comes from a trauma past off to their room alone and they are hurting and they need that connection, but you tell them to go do timeout, they're thinking, I'm not worthy. Nobody, again, nobody loves me, you know, and that just, that does more harm than good. And so just really meeting them where they're at, lowering your, your bar and letting them meet it and, and just lowering your expectations will go such a long ways. Right. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Is this advice that you would also give to like parents or adults too? Because I know some of our listeners are definitely thinking like, man, that was my childhood or that's, you know, like uh, we have parents and then also, you know, people that have their own trauma history at any point in their life. Um, Is that advice that you would also give to families that maybe don't have severe trauma or, you know, are overlooking it. Cause I think, I think it's really common, um, as a clinician, I see sometimes where maybe a teen will come in and the parents have also presented to therapy and saying, you know, they're kind of frustrated with some of the teen's behavior and that they'd say there's no trauma. But as a clinician, I would say, well, I beg to differ, you know, like maybe Mm -hmm. there's something that's happened that the parent doesn't know about, but also it's probably some of the small T patterns that are happening within the home that Mm -hmm. is influencing the child's behavior. And so, um, how do you, how do you suggest addressing that? Yeah, I think that's a really good question because it's really funny you bring that up. So I just, I just went over that the other day with a child or with a um, teenager and their family. And, you know, you're right as a clinician, we're told different things in session. And so then it's hard to, if the person's not ready to divulge that information to their family. However, I always preface, and like, while you're not ready to share this, I do think it's important for your parents to understand that there is some hurt going on and you're just not ready to share it yet. Mm-hmm. But how they need to parent is different because of the hurt that has occurred. And again, whether it's big T or little T, you know, parents um, I think the hardest thing as parents, even if you have a safe nurse, is it's to recognize that we have caused maybe some hurt 
in our children, you know? And so I even look at my own parenting, I'm like, oh man, if I could have done that differently, I, I you know, now I, when you know better, you yeah. do better. <laughs> I think all the time, I'm like, oh my gosh, can I redo like the first two years of my children's lives? Mm-hmm. And so like, I also think that's important. Like us as clinicians, we don't have all the answers. We're not perfect. And so I tell that oftentimes to some of my parents that I work with. I'm like, I get it. It's frustrating. It's hard. It's nobody gives you a book on what to do. There's no like parenting Bible and we're all just out here winging it really. And so, um, and you learn from your mistakes, but yeah, I do try to provide the same information because I do think it still can be applied. Mm-hmm. While you might not have been able to connect with your child at a younger level, it doesn't mean it's not lost. You can still try to connect with them, get to know them. Teenagers are hard, man. They, they are like their own, like special code in itself. And so like, even if you did connect and now they're older, you have to reconnect. They have new new thoughts. They have new desires. They're trying to establish who they are in this world. If there is trauma, big T or little T, now they're trying to figure out like, okay, my world was safe and now my world's just been rocked. Yeah. Like, how do I, how do I get through this? Mm-hmm. And then parents can come alongside. And I always tell them, I said, you guys are fighting for the same thing. You guys are a team. You're not fighting against each other. You want to keep you want to keep your child safe and you want to be safe. You guys are fighting for the same goal. Mm-hmm. And so how can we help your parents to align with you? And oftentimes it's an education that I do with the the child. And then I have the child in their words when they're ready, talk with us about parents. But yeah, I definitely do think it can be applicable as the child is older, even and experiences trauma. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that. Yeah, I agree. And I think that that's something that, like you said, as parents, like we can, we should just assume that we've caused some hard hardship in our kids' lives. And that doesn't mean that was our intention, right? And right. that doesn't mean that it might go all the way on the more severe end of the spectrum of abuse, but um, that as parents, we're not perfect. And so we, mm-hmm. we, yeah, we've left that f- fingerprint too somehow, just like our own parents who might have been wonderful parents, you know, didn't get it all right all the time. And so I think that's also like, you know, a little sliver of hope for parents to say like, yep, you messed up probably. And like, there, like you said, mm-hmm. there's hope um, and for kids to validate for kids to be validated that, you know, what they're experiencing is frustrating and adults don't always know best, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things in your professional background is you've worked with a lot of families with foster care and adoption. And I think that's a, that's a population that isn't talked about as much. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, like your professional experience. I know that's a part of your story if you're willing to share, but I'd love to shine a little bit of light there. Yeah, I feel like that's a whole nother episode in itself, right? <laughs> um, yeah, foster care and adoption. Man, that's um, that's a hard one. I feel, you know, like I'm, I'm working on trying to figure out how to best support these foster parents going through these really hard times because oh, I don't even know where to start with that. Um, foster care is... even Okay, so I guess I'll start with this. A child that is removed from their biological parents a lot of times people think like they're going to come to my home grateful that I'm giving them a bed. I'm giving them food. I'm giving them um, a safe roof. I'm giving them clothes. I'm giving them all the things and I am going to love them so much. And they're going to love me back because I'm doing this for them. 
wrong. Absolutely not. Just because the child is removed from their biological family does not mean that they don't love their mom or dad. And, you know, that's also really hard for these parents, these adoptive and foster parents to understand because oftentimes these children are abused by or neglected by their biological parents in some form or fashion. You know, the substance use, um, the neglect, the physical abuse, the sexual abuse, like all all of this emotional abuse. They inherit, we as children inherently love our parents. And so, and then when you are separated from them, you have an adjustment phase. So you're, you're missing your parents, but you like being in a home where you feel safe, but you also feel loyal to your parents. You know, I also think it depends on age too. Um, and I caution foster parents and adoptive parents uh, to overload the child right away. You know, I was, I went into foster care. My foster care experience was very poor. Um, I experienced all forms of abuse there. So um, it was not good. But let me tell you that I had a honeymoon phase and I thought it was the greatest place on earth. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, they gave me gifts. They gave me presents. I got my own room. And then slowly over time, it, it changed. And somewhere along the line, though, I felt loyal to them because they gave me these gifts. They gave me this food. They gave me a place to sleep. They they didn't, we weren't homeless. We didn't live in a car. I always had a hot meal and I got to take a shower, you know? So it's it's a weird line to tote. And then... Um, and then you're, you get adopted and, and then you wonder, you know, for me anyway, like, hmm, is this family really safe? Am I, am, am I really going to be safe here? And then the longer I'm there, I start to realize like, yes, this home is safe. I am safe here. Now I can tell somebody what has happened to me and I can share my story and maybe they'll believe me. Um, and they did. I mean, my, my adoptive parents were, they fought just, they fought for me, you know, and they, you know, there's still stuff that, they're still doing today to aid me. And so I think foster parents and adoptive parents think that this love can solve all these issues. Consistency, showing up at during those hard times. That is what these children need. They need that ripple effect. They need that adult to show them, okay, yes, love is, is a component, but they also need consistency and they need to know structure. They need structure. You know, those teenagers that come in, and just buck every rule, they secretly love it. <laughs> they, they're craving that, but they're not going to let you know that. Right. But when you do it from a loving place and you don't like hammer it down to them, but you're like, you know, rule is we go to bed at nine. Rule is we turn our phones in at night. Rule is that if you don't eat supper, then you can come to us and we'll, we'll keep your plate warm for you. And that then you can have it at a later time if you don't feel comfortable doing so. You know, they get to know the rules. They know the expectations. And they're, you know, so that's important too. And I also always caution parents um, that are in the foster adoption field, just because you take a baby and you take that baby in versus a teenager or an older child does not mean that in the future, there will not be issues. Mm -hmm. What I've always said too, because oftentimes people see the cute baby, they want the baby. Oh, we're getting the baby soon enough. They're going to have no trauma. Mm -hmm. Nope, not true. Mm -hmm. You know, you never know what that child's going to experience. But and I always make it like a little joke. I always say, you know, I was 10 when I was adopted. My parents knew exactly what they were getting into because, man, I was not an easy child. And so I always say, when you get some of these older children, you know a little bit of what to expect. You know the history. You know, what's, you know what might come up. But when you're taking in that cute little sweet baby 
yes, you're still providing a home and, and a loving environment for it, but also you need to be aware that there are things that will come up with those developmental stages. Thanks for saying that. That's so important. And that's something that I think is often overlooked and misunderstood and then taken personally that, you know, like adopting a baby or taking in a baby as a foster child um, is not the same as like getting a puppy from a rescue. It's, you know, there's, there's going to be there's going to be some battles. There's going to be trauma, even if the trauma, like you said, is in utero and the guaranteed trauma of the rupture of attachment from separation from the birth mother, even, you know, if, if adoption was like that soon, that there's still mm -hmm. that trauma and that child will still grow up affected by that with a lot of questions of feeling yes. like, you know, who's this, you know, who, what's, what's my DNA? What's my history? You know, who's my family? Probably mm -hmm. having a longing for that, that they don't know how to articulate. And yes. like you said, perhaps a, an, an appreciation and a love for the foster family or the adoptive family. And it's really common that I think um, adoptive families and foster families of babies, infants will take that personal and feel rejected. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because they're, they're not understanding what's happening. And that is so confusing for everybody, you know, and then they look at it as, you know, problem child and whatnot. But if we can have that understanding that that's, that's a part of the gig and mm -hmm. almost expect it and have mm -hmm. patience for it and know that that's part of that child's path um, and support it, then that child can probably work through it a lot faster and know that it's okay. It's okay to wonder. It's okay to feel confused. And, you know, cause so many kids that grew up with, um, you know, adoption in their, in their history, don't feel a full sense of a belonging or they don't know what it's like to have like a blood family member in their life. Um, and that's hard. A lot of us can't relate to that. And so we think, well, we love you because we accept you and you belong. And they know that, but it's, that's different than feeling that way. Yes, absolutely. I will say, I mean, you hit the nail right on the head that I went through all of that, you know, and there are still days today. I'm like, I have, yes, I was adopted by two very loving parents. And yes, they did their absolutely best to make sure that I felt included in the family. But there are times that I have never felt more like a stranger within my own family. And then I feel like I've had to essentially build my family with my friends, you know, and I connect to those. And it, it is hard, you know, and this is something too to prepare your children for. Like, it is very hard to see families be a unit and to be healthy. And my husband can attest to this. I have such a hard time going to family events because his family is so normal. He has zero aces and I have all 10. <laughs> and, you know, like, it's just, it's a different world. And so that again, and it's, is a whole nother episode in itself is that. And also too, I wanted to touch on what you said, you know, the DNA piece and the, the longing and the wanting to know that is, it's so true because, um, you want to know where you come from. And in school, or at least I did this when I was in school and it was, it was such a hard thing, the family tree. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So here I am sitting as a fifth grader. What family tree do I do? I don't really know much about my other family tree because my brain has protected me from a lot of stuff. I have very blurry memories, but like if I do my family tree for my adopted, they're not like my real family. So like, is it accurate? You know, like, these things happen in school and I know schools don't mean to, but it's not for, you know, they just don't think about that stuff. And okay. so then you have a child then who will come home after maybe a hard day at school and then they've kept it together all day. And then you see those behaviors. 
Yeah. And, and, and you know, that was the assignment, right? And that's part of, you know, being trauma informed is not just like when one child hits another child in the lunch line, it's also, okay, how do we be inclusive for these types of assignments? You know, and it's not to say, yeah. oh, nothing, we're not going to do them, but how do we include children that have, you know, diverse backgrounds mm-hmm. into assignments like that and help them through that? And Absolutely. because that child still, I'm sure during that assignment, a part of you said, you know, I, my adoptive family, I, I feel maybe I want to do because I have more clarity and that's what everybody knows about. And so, but like you said, air quotes, not my real family. And then this also this part of me that like, I want to include, cause that's important too. And I yeah. think sometimes the biological family is what is often overlooked. Like, cause they're not, they may not be in the picture anymore that it's like, like they don't matter and how painful that is to like, feel like where you come from doesn't matter. That would be hurtful to any of us. Mm -hmm. And I always tell foster parents and adoptive parents, especially adoptive parents, when you've adopted this child, you need to honor where they come from. Mm -hmm. And if they ask questions, you answer them honestly. Mm -hmm. And you don't shun them. You don't shut it down. You don't make it secretive because then they're going to go digging for stuff on their own and you're not going to like that outcome. And so I always say, keep a box. If parents, if it's a closed adoption and parents write letters anyways, keep them in a box, give it to them when they turn 18. If, if uh, you have an open adoption and you know, that's great, then develop that relationship too with, with that biological parent, because um, you never know when you might need to reach out and, and get some information for that child. You know, I just think about myself when, um, when I was pregnant, I had two very, very difficult pregnancies and I didn't know any of my genetic information or anything. And so, you know, stuff like that to keep that for them, keep those social medicals that counties create for these children. And every time I have an adopted child on my caseload for clinical work, we create an all about me book and I do parent sessions and I have the parents come in and I have them fill it out. And the, the child doesn't know it yet, but they're going to get that book when they turn 18. And it has all of their background information, has pictures, it has stories, it has, this was your first foster home. I even tried to reach out to other foster parents and I have them write a letter and say, hey, you know, I'm doing clinical work with releases, of course. I'm doing clinical work with this child and we're creating this book. You were a part of their healing journey. Do you feel comfortable writing a letter just talking about your family? Because they might want to remember this in the future. And so we make those books together for these children to have because they're going to have questions. And the other key thing too, that I always talk about foster and adoptive parents is do not ever talk bad about that child's biological parents. Mm -hmm. Yes, you might need to vent about them, but do not ever talk bad about them in front of that child. I like to use Play-Doh and I have everybody take a color Play-Doh and um, I have the child take a color to represent them. And then I have the foster parents. They are essentially mom and dad in this scenario and I, they mix it together and then I have them try to separate it. And what happens? You can't because the child is half half of their biological mother and half of their biological father. If they hear you talking poor about any of those two, they're going to inherently think, well, if they don't like my my birth mom, then they must not like this part of me either. I'm inherently bad. Yeah. And if my if my birth dad is such a bad guy, then I'm bad too. You know, they they take that internally and they process that. And so just be very cautious about 
how words are extremely important. So be very cautious about the words you use. Yeah. And that's so important too. I mean, I think with all parents, you know, Mm co-parenting situations, you know, even more nuclear family um, constellations of like to not talk bad about a child's parent is like such a fundamental rule that so many parents break. (laughs) Because like you you said, it can be frustrating and we have our own opinions and we have our judgments and, you know, whatever perspectives on things. And yet kids, if it's so it is hurtful to them and it's confusing because like Mm -hmm. you said earlier, we inherently love our parents. We're biologically programmed to love our parents to ensure our survival. And so Mm -hmm. when you're bad things that are in contra, you know, contradicting that, and we don't know how to make sense of it, it's confusing. And Mm -hmm. then it typically backfires because the person doing the bad mouthing, we feel a little bit of like anger or confusion about that. Well, I love you too. And like, Mm -hmm. now it's, it's, it's too much for them to really synthesize And so um, I think that's such an important reminder for parents. And I love what you were saying about that book, uh, the All About Me book, because that, you know, being able to like follow a child's timeline, especially if they've been in multiple settings and different homes, um, a, a child, I think, can not only feel, you know, the feelings of like abandonment or rejection, but also like the meaning that's created out of that of like, I don't matter. I'm not important. Mm-hmm. Like whether that's nobody wants me or whatever, that's, I'm sure they just feel so lost in the shuffle. And then to like come back to hear like how they mattered to that family and mm-hmm. they still matter to that family is can help rewrite that internal dialogue of like, I don't matter or nobody loves me or the, and how confusing that is of even, even in like, you know, open adoption settings for a child to be confused about like, well, everybody says my mom loved me, but I'm not with my mom and she gave me up for adoption. So like, Mm -hmm. that's too complex for them to really understand, you know, that it could be an act of love to choose adoption. Right. But like children don't understand that yet. Right. Yeah. And on top of that, too, you have situations, especially at county level, where a set of five siblings, maybe three of them are adopted, but two of them get to go home. And then also you're like, wait, you know, this child is probably thinking, why did I do something bad that I don't get to be home with my with my birth mom? Or was I not good enough? Did I not listen enough? Did I not steal enough? Did I not? You know, sometimes these children have to do things because the parents are telling them to because we inherently want to trust and love and make our parents proud of us, we're going to do whatever they ask us to do. But did I not do it well enough to the point where they didn't want me and they, they had me go live with a different family, but my younger siblings or my other siblings, they, they did better. Mm -hmm. And so there's also that too. Um, I mean, there's just, it's a whole complex (laughs) situation. Right. And even even in a situation like that, where siblings are separated, you know, the kids that are not uh, with their birth parents, that feeling of like, what, what's wrong with me that I, I wasn't, I'm not able to stay home. And with the siblings that are left at home, sometimes feel traumatized by that. If there's, you know, profound abuse or neglect going on of like, why wasn't I saved? And then that, yeah. you know, that jealousy of typically the younger ones that are removed into another setting um, to meet their needs and the developmental needs and the older ones feel like, I don't matter. I was left behind. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Again, that's where the, the fingerprint of trauma comes in. You know, everybody's trauma stories. You might have similar trauma or you, it's just different. It's just, it's wired into your genetic makeup and and who you are as a person. And, and also I want to preface to, you know, trauma is nothing to be ashamed of. 
We live in a society where, oh, you can't talk about that. That's not, that's not acceptable, you know, but it, it is nothing to be ashamed of. It's a part of who you are. It's a part of your story. You would not be here today if you had not experienced what you experienced. And um, just to anybody who's listening, who might be going through a hard time right now, um, I'm going to try not to cry, but it does get better and you can heal from it and you can come out on top of it and you are not your trauma and um, you are worthy. And I, I just, I, I want everybody who's gone through trauma to under, to get to that point. And, you know, your story might have started out really muddy and really icky and things might have happened to you to make you feel unsafe. But the beauty of healing is being able to come out on the other side. And what I am most grateful for is being adopted because if I had it, I would be right where my birth mom is. I would be using drugs. I would probably have six kids and all removed. You know, who knows? And, you know, that one ripple effect completely changed my life. And now I get to take my experience and everything that I have learned with it and I get to help others. And, you know, people who are going through trauma, we understand it on a different level because we've lived it. And so don't undermine what you've experienced, you know, own it. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It is, it's a part of who you are and it can be a beautiful journey. If you take the time to really, why did I have to go through this? Right. And, and you can use it for good. Right. Thanks for saying all that, Brie. And thank you also for, you know, your transparency with, you know, some of your personal story, because that's something that, you know, as clinicians, we're often dehumanized in such a way that like we aren't, you know, supposed to share, which there's times that we're not supposed to share. And that's the most appropriate choice, but we're also humans. And sometimes it can be very helpful to our clients to know, you know, that like my therapist has been through something and it can make us so much more potent with our clients because we can have that lived experience and that hope and that understanding and compassion and empathy that can't be taught through you know, any other experience or, or book Mm -hmm. smarts or anything. So you're such a gift to your clients to be able to not only have the wealth of experience that you had, you know, working for County and now as a clinician with, you know, your trauma, your trauma expertise, but the lived experience as well to like, you know, really deepen your understanding of that and share that with clients is such a gift. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's truly honoring and humbling to be able to be on this side of it. And to be able to give back and just to help others, you know, learn and grow and just to, to get through all the mud because it really, it really is worth it to get to the other side. Yeah. Thank you. Um, as we kind of wrap up, what, what advice or what, what other things have, do we not touch on that you feel that, um, families, kids, adults should know? Yeah, I think um, just really, you know, if there's a question that you guys are asking, ask it. There's no such thing as a stupid question, especially when it comes to trauma. If, um, you know, people who are listening to this and they have their own situation and they were like drawn towards something, do some research and look it up. Um, Karen Purvis is an amazing resource. She has the TBRI podcast. Um, I use her modality that she's developed uh, all the time in my sessions. Um, She is and amazing her and her colleagues are just they're a wealth of knowledge um another one that i use a lot too is dan siegel he he wrote the whole brain child which is an amazing book um 
there, there's just so many resources out there. Like you are not alone. Um, people understand, but I think it takes courage to stand up and be like, look, I'm over my head. I, I have no idea what to do. I'm struggling here, but please reach out to someone, you know, um, and, and just get some of those resources and, and, and start doing some of your own research. And then as a child, you know, if there's a teenager or a child who happens to be overhearing this, like you are not alone. Um, and it, it can be scary to share your story. It can be scary if you've never reported and, and you feel like you all of a sudden want to report. Um, ask the questions, lean in and, and figure out who it is that you can trust and, and maybe journal about it. You know, I always talk about keep a journal, like write, get it out because our body holds on, you know, Body Keeps Score is another amazing book um, and another amazing resource. And there is actually a workbook to do alongside the book that you can get off of Amazon for very cheap. Um, and I've, I've worked through it myself and it is beyond amazing. It's such a wealth of knowledge. You have to read it like 10 times <laughs> to, to like fully grasp everything. Um, but I think my biggest piece of advice to parents parenting children from hard places is hold steady, mm -hmm. lower your expectations and just meet them where they're at. Because when you, my favorite quote by Karen, Karen Purvis is when you can connect with a child, anything is possible. Mm -hmm. Find that connection piece, hold steady, be consistent. It might take 30 times, but once that 31st try comes along, they're going to all of a sudden, something is going to click within that child and you might not know what it is, Mm -hmm. But when you are there over repeatedly again and again and again, and you show up the exact same, no frustration, no anger, you just allow them to be them, mm -hmm. it will pay off. Yeah. Just, just stay steady and hold the line for your child yeah. and just be that person. And also in the same breath, find a support group for yourself so you can have a place to vent about this safely because yes. it is hard work. And you are not a bad parent for having to vent about parenting a child that comes from a hard place because it is hard and it's a grueling process. Yes. So all of that, I mean, again, so much, but, but just lower your expectations and work on connecting. Yeah. And supporting the self. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Made a lot, a lot of self-care <laughs> massages, <laughs> uh, maybe yelling in a cornfield, <laughs> like whatever you're, you know, you're from Minnesota when, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Just go find a random cornfield. Yeah. Just, um, just really rely and trust your gut too. Like we were given that second brain in our gut for a reason. So trust it and just follow your intuition. Right. Thank you, Brie. Yeah. Brie, where do we find you? You know, I know um, you're, you're with Sojourn, you're in the Wilmer location, but how do, how do other listeners find you on social media or reach out to you directly? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have my work cell phone number um, that I think is going to be posted. So you guys, if anybody wants to reach out to me that way, they are more than welcome to. Um, if people are wanting a resource list, I can happily put one together and I can send it out. Uh, I am found on bloomingwithbree.org. Um, I have also Blooming with Bree on Instagram. And so people are more than welcome to follow me on there. And I have it both places set up so you can reach out and ask questions if there is any. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Thank you so much. This has been such a powerful podcast and one that we, it's so important to continue this conversation. So thank you for shining light in these areas. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed being able to share. Yeah. My pleasure.